everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Hey Hey Agave, a podcast brought to you by Tuyo NYC. I'm Sabrina, your host. And today we have a repeat guest. Tess Rose Lampert came by to talk about her recent trip to Durango. We've broken down the conversation into two parts. Uh, one we're calling Durango Part 1 and Durango Part 2. In this first conversation, Tess talks about the different vinatas she visited. Something that's interesting to note here, and I didn't know this before uh, Tess told us, is that in Durango, they use the term vinatas instead of palenques, the place where the mezcal is made, and vinateros or vinateras instead of mezcalero mezcalera, the person who makes the mezcal. We also talked about the differences and similarities of mezcal production in Oaxaca and Durango, and she introduced us to Lagrimas de Dolores, uh, which is a vinata that is co-owned and operated by Fabiola Avila, which is really exciting because we're always happy to promote women in the industry, and she's doing some pretty amazing work. We discussed the Ceniso agave, which is indigenous to the area, and we talked a lot about its uh, robust biodiversity. We covered a bunch of other topics um, as well, so I do hope you enjoyed this conversation we had with Tess Rose Lampert. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another podcast from Hey Hey Agave. We are here today with Tess Rose Lampert. Hi. Hello. And we're joined by Gabrielle this time. Hey, guys. How's everybody doing? I'm doing great. Awesome. So we're here to talk to Tess today about a recent trip that she took to Durango, Mexico. And I think I'm just going to open it up to you. Like, let's start talking about your trip. Great. Yeah. Um, I am very, very excited still, still kind of on the high from going to Durango. Um, I think like a lot of other people who have traveled to Mexico for mezcal and agave spirits, uh, I've been to other places, Michoacan, Oaxaca, Puebla, but not Durango. And really just in the last year, um, we've had we've had more mezcal from Durango come into the market. For people that don't know this, Durango is a northern state of Mexico. It is closer to Sonora, to Sinaloa, to Nayarit, to Jalisco. So this is a completely different beast compared to the South Oaxaca or Puebla states. That's true. And it's not only the food and the terrain and all of that that's different. Um, it's, it's just like a completely different country, uh, kind of like the, I think about the regions of Italy. I know I talked about Italy last time. Um, it's so regional. And when we think about the history of agave, this is something really interesting to me. And, and mezcal specifically, distilling agave spirits. This area is a little bit more ancestral than the South. So we do have the most biodiversity in Oaxaca, but where we had the original distillation of, of agave was probably closer to the North. Um, so that's always interesting to keep in mind also. You have a giant mountain range that crosses the whole state that is kind of like a natural uh, border that is, is kind of interesting. My, my family's from the north part of Mexico too, from Sinaloa. And I know that my ancestrals are from Durango, from Tamazula. And there was this thing that we have not there been yet there. 
because just to cross from one state to another, you have to basically cross uh, like the Rocky Mountains in the States. Very similar to that. So it's it's a it's an insulated, well protected, amazing biodiversity. And uh, that mountain range is the Sierra Madre. Yes. Yeah. yeah, for anyone who loves mountains, Durango is a really nice place to visit. I mean, it's one of those places you go and just as far as the eye can see, it's mountain, 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 and it's incredibly beautiful and incredibly difficult to drive. We, um, we broke the van that the Board of Tourism gave us <laughs> the second day driving on the rough terrain, um, and then we had to switch to SUVs, so we rented two SUVs, and uh, <laughs> only in Mexico. The car rental company also has a brand of mezcal, so when we rented the SUVs, it came with a bottle of mezcal. <laughs> <laughs> Because you should drink and drive, most likely. Absolutely. What goes better? Rough terrain, mezcal. Well, if you get lost or your band breaks, you have plenty of time to drink that one bottle that you have in the car. That's very true. That's very true. So so you're in Durango and you're with a group of people? Yeah, it was a great group of people, mostly industry people who work either doing agave education or have bars and restaurants, importers, similarly passionate agave nerds, which is always great. Who invited you to this trip? Is it something that you organized or somebody else? I did not organize it. So this was a joint effort between a fairly new organization called Espiritus de Durango. And this is a conglomerate of seven brands that have come together to promote Durango mezcal country. And they were working with Lou Bank, who's based in Chicago, who's amazing. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't already know Lou Bank, look up Sacred Agave. He's awesome. So he invited some people that he knew. And then I heard about it through the grapevine from uh, Noah Arnstein. And I invited myself because that's that's what I'll do to get to Mescal country. Absolutely. <laughs> it sounds like it was a trip that you couldn't pass up anyway. So yeah, definitely. Um, and I went with no expectations. I, I mean, I knew that I was going to have a good time or I expected to have a very good time. Um, even the trips that I've gone on to, you know, mezcal explorations with a group of gringos sponsored by the board of tourism in some way, those admittedly have been my least favorite. This one definitely defied that that expectation you were with all the professionals in the field you were with Lou you were with Noah you were with Farron like these are people that on any single night that we have sit down is like mezcal gig night talking all night drinking comparing notes like this sounds like an amazing trip it was really really well put together in terms of the personalities I mean, just to be able to sit down with someone. And when you're driving and you see agave and you get excited about it, I'm used to being the only person, right? I'm used to everyone being like, okay, Tess, calm down. <laughs> and we're all as excited on the same level. So that really did make a difference. Um, but also just coming at it with just the mild expectation to have a good time and to learn something, I was blown away. Um, I never could have anticipated what... I actually did see what the industry is like and everything that I learned. And of course, the hospitality, um, what, you know, exceeded my expectations in every way. It always does yeah. when visiting Mexico. Absolutely. So why don't you tell us about um, what, where you went to first? What was the agenda like? 
Yeah, the agenda was laid out um, in a really good way. The first two places I think I can talk about together because they share a lot. Um, and just to give a little bit of a perspective, one of the major differences that we were exposed to right off the bat, and I think this was part of the plan of how the trip was organized, uh, maybe not, maybe it was a happy accident, but the infrastructure and the resources behind the mezcal industry is completely different than Oaxaca. Anyone who's been to Oaxaca, or if you've seen pictures or read the blogs, you're expecting something really rustic, really small family operations, or something on the other end of the spectrum, which is big and industrial, and there's not a whole lot in between. Whereas in Durango, it was a lot of in between, or on that end of the spectrum with a lot of money behind these operations, but not done in an industrial way. So the first two producers that we visited, Cuero Viejo, and then one, another one that's in the United States already, Origen Raiz, uh, there's considerable investment. And that's interesting to me because it takes away the financial pressure of the business. And that frees them up to focus on other things, like the aspect of craft and building. Um, one thing to notice is it's not called a palenque in Durango. It's called a vinata. And they're not called uh, mezcaleros, maestro mezcaleros. They're called vinateros. It's interesting that you say vino. Yes. Because there has been all these, you know, chats that we have of the vino de mezcal mm-hmm. versus mezcal itself. So it's, it tells you a little bit how far back this might have come uh, in, in the history of mezcal. You mean from the Spanish? From the Spanish, but also for the, the, the language used as vino de mezcal versus just mezcal is, is obviously that they have... Uh, and vinateria is nothing that is like the place that sells vino and vino as we know is wine but in spanish is vino and vino de mezcal is this all you know back and forward that we have been having conversation of how this all started of fermentation and distillation from the spanish and you know we can go hours about it but it's, it's an interesting thing that is called different than the southern part of mexico It is interesting, and I think that's one of those ties to prove, essentially, that the northern areas maybe do have even a longer history than the southern producing areas. I'm not trying to start a war here between Oaxaca and Durango. No, you know, but I do want to just ask one question. Whereas in Oaxaca, you have these tiny little villages, right? Economically, very poor, mostly. Um, you're saying in Durango it's it's more because there's more investment the facilities are just a better means they're well built they're bigger I don't know Durango has a, a interesting uh, background that is not just agave related is we were we were doing some research and they are one of the biggest uh, mining mm-hmm. estates for silver so if you have a mining state that in any given day you have at least 20, 15 hours from Mexico City to Tamazula, that is the capital. So it was very like isolated from the other part of Mexico. And that might say also that the richness and the culture and what you were saying that it almost feels like another country is probably because it, it developed as another country in, inside Mexico. 
Yeah, and there's so there the three biggest industries there, not agave, mining, cattle, and then forestry. Um, and I I got the sense that there was a lot of old money, and that's that's what's interesting. And the the families that are investing in mezcal that come from this old money are doing it out of a love for the community to create an industry in their community that's going to bring jobs. Um, so the uh, Cuero Viejo, specifically, they are building out this whole kind of resort compound where they have this amazing spa planned. They have a little restaurant. They have these villas you can stay in. And the Vinata is there. So part of it is experiencing mezcal. And it really is to to bring a little bit more of tourism and wealth to the community. So it's a celebration of what of what's already happening. And I think that that's something that can only happen from a place of economic stability that is just not the reality in Oaxaca. So it's not better or worse. I you know, I don't like I don't like a mezcal production facility better if it's more rustic. I think it really depends on the practices and and the intentions behind it. But it is interesting to note that when all of that is equal, there are more opportunities when you have more money, which is not a groundbreaking realization. You were just saying something very interesting. That is, there's no stress on, you know, you have to sell it. This is your money making. This is your, this is like the sustent of your family. Yes, it does provide a lot of, uh, you know, economical development in Mexico, Mezcal by far is becoming one of the forces of uh, work. Uh, even most like it is, is bringing people back from the States to Mexico to endeavor in their family business that, you know, otherwise a lot of people just left. So now they're like understanding that this, this is culture, this is family, this is something that they can absolutely regrowth and, and make a culture. But, but Durango is, is one of those interesting states that... Um, you know, I, I have all these memories driving from Mexico City to Culiacán that right now you can make it in 12 hours. Uh, the trip was 27 when I was little. Yeah. And when you were saying that the terrain is complicated, it is mostly like a zigzag like a snail uh, for hours. On rocky hours. dirt. On rocky dirt. We can call them roads, but I'm being yeah. generous. No, 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 no. And this... it's much better than it used to be. So the access is is a lot easier, but still with difficulty. It's still complicated, yes. So one of the interesting things about the first two places, Origen Raiz and Cuero Viejo, is they're making mezcal in kind of a Oaxacan style. And the families are close, and I think that they have been learning together. And I think that this comes from a partnership between uh, the Cortez family. So Asis Cortez and his father, Valentin, invested in a project with um, Origen, to do Origen Raiz. So they have a Tejona. Their mezcalero is from Oaxaca. He relocated with his family to Durango to make this mezcal. Um, and similarly, Cuero Viejo has a Tejona. They're the only two producers in Durango that use a tahona, the big stone wheel that's used to crush the cooked agave. Uh, it's more traditional to use uh, manual labor and big wooden bats or axes to chop up the agave. So that's really interesting. And I think that it's done in a way that is a celebration of the two 
regions. Um, it's not done without thought and care, but it is something that we should take note of. Um, and then the other places are, some of them are a little bit more focused on doing it the Durango, Durango way. Uh, and the one that comes to mind for me is Lagrimas de Dolores, which is the only other mezcal from Durango, I believe, available as we're recording this. And available in the States. Available in the States, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, which will be changing soon. Mm-hmm. And the way that they're doing their production, they work with six different producers, and they have two main areas that they manage, and then their other producers are in more remote locations. We did visit one of those remote locations uh, in Temoaya, which is a tiny, tiny remnant of a town, really, tucked away in the mountains, and it was a mining town. When you drive up to it and you see this dot of a town in a valley, I asked, I said, why is there a town here? What, what was this? And it was a mining area. And now it's just a very small town. It was, when you get to the center of town, there's like one bathroom and there's a shower in there and there's one phone. Um, and So who lives there? I had a small community of people and the Vinata there was more like what I would expect from Oaxaca tucked away in the middle of nowhere, very, very rustic, but also being built out. But you know, when you have something like that, it may, it comes to mind. Like, so they are getting all their agaves on the wild. Yes. The the difference from a, a bigger, more, industrial or more put together if you want to say it like that uh palenque vinata versus something that you find in the middle of the mountains in the only flat part that exists for miles and like you you know that these guys are going up in a donkey up the mountain cutting the selecting their agave and cutting it to perfection and bringing maybe three pieces a day and you know the, the the procedure is so much different in time it is different and being remote like that and just even if we get down to the the yeasts that exist in those mountain communities is different than even if you're in surrounded by nature but outside of the city so everything about it is different and we know that mezcal is so terroir driven so i i really like the fact that there are different expressions from different areas under this label when you find a when you find a brand you can trust it's nice to have different expressions uh, but they are working on getting them a crusher so one of the things that they do in their they have an old hacienda outside of the city and they use a crusher they don't use a tahona because that's oaxacan style and this is durango and they don't have manual labor because it's backbreaking work and it's too hard on the employees and this is one of those instances of modern technology and evolving with the times without sacrificing quality or tradition. You have to ask the question, do we have people working, even if we can pay them well, doing this task over and over and over, which is going to be dangerous for their health? Or do we use a crusher? And I I support the answer, yeah. we use a crusher. And a crusher um, is similar uh, to like a, a wood chip cutter so it has a lot of blades and you throw the um, cooked pinas in there and it mashes them up for you instead of having somebody do it by hand i'm a little bit more romantic i have to say that the idea of transferring energy from one's body to one's work to one's action 
my in my romantic thought and brain will say it will transfer to the taste but it's this is i understand what you say absolutely right. and it's i will agree with you absolutely but i will also in the romantic romanticizing part of this is the the old school smashing well, with the mullet it's interesting that you say that because you know just from a, the perspective of like you know, how much information can we hope to yield from these producers and the people that are bottling and labeling? Absolutely. You know, what's the most important to know? What's the what's the interesting stuff, the interesting bits, but then what's like the real heart of it that like we really are looking for, you know? And and I would imagine that the way that the agave is mashed and, and chopped up is important to know, but it's not integral to the final product. Um, in the sense of, you know, we, we're all getting to the same end somehow. Maybe, maybe not. So I would, if I were going to argue the other side, which I think, you know, there's an argument for both sides, <laughs> not only the romantic part of it, but actual, the science of it. So the way, if, if everything is mashed up in the same size, that's going to have a different fermentation than if we have bigger chunks and smaller chunks and if we have bigger chunks, then maybe the fermentation is slower and more flavors develop. So I think that there is a difference. Uh, one of the reasons that I trust specifically Lagrimas de Dolores to kind of pave this new way is their uh, mezcalera or their uh, vinatera, Fabiola. And she comes from a background of being a biochemist. She is the first generation mezcal maker and she is the person there making the mezcal every day. That's so awesome. It's so awesome. How did she get involved in this if she's first generation? Someone put her in touch when she was still in she was still in school. They put her in touch with the the family and she started making mezcal with them. And she just got completely enveloped in the world. It really grabbed her. And now when you listen to her talk, she says, and she's gone through different times in her life. She's a mother. I think she has more on the way. And she said, but I'm, this is my life now. Mezcal is my life and I will always work with mezcal. That's so cool. One of the last conversations that I have with Sandra from in situ, she mentioned something that you're saying that is very interesting. Like people are fighting to find the best chemists. Like the mezcalero time where like, the 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 knowledge that come from the heritage and sure is highly highly appreciated but knowing that they need to do volume and quality and keep the same uh, efforts and not debate from there and like it's very interesting like the, the chemistry part of of mezcal uh making is becoming uh, uh an important one like it, wa it was always important, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's becoming one of the ones that in order to keep a business going is, 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 is a key factor. Right. It's not just the folk methods. It's the actual science of it. So if Fabiola can take, you know, a hand crushed agave and make mezcal out of it and then put her stamp on the fact that they can use a machine to crush the agave and make something of the same quality, I trust that. So I think that people like her and her specifically are in a really unique position that are bringing mezcal into contemporary culture in the best possible way. It's the best of all possible worlds. It's something very interesting to say also that 
because it is becoming a, a mass market. Is is not not longer the quinceañeros party that the grandfather did the pechuga for the hundred people that they were gonna drink that time. So now you have to think about this on a on a on a clever way. Like is there's no big taboo anymore. Like yes, it's a mass market. Yes, it has to be quality. Yes, we still look for those amazing you know one of a kind mezcals, and you will have them. But then you will have to treasure it and pay for them as what they are. That is hard work, that is difficult, that is complicated, that is, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a human, uh, it's a human machine making it, not your wood chipper or crusher. So you're gonna have to be able to discern it like, sure, I on my normal every month bottle that I buy, that I spend like 50, 60, 80 dollars, that's okay. If I'm gonna spend the two hundred or the three hundred dollars that is gonna to go to the, you know, laborious effort to do these amazing mezcals, well, now you know where it's coming from. Right, and and even we went to one producer that was semi-industrial, semi-artisanal, and what I liked about them, which I haven't seen from other areas, is they were completely transparent, and they didn't have any shame or feeling that they had to hide what their process was. And they should be. Exactly. Yeah. It was it was really refreshing. And they also had the biggest effort that we could see of replanting, you know, having a giant nursery and really getting into how what are the best practices for replanting their most most common variety, the Sanizo, Durangensis. And seeing all of that and hearing them talk about who their customer was, what flavor profile they were going for, which they nail, right? They hit the nail on the head and it maybe is not for the international market who's super excited, but for the local market, for younger drinkers of legal age um, who want to get into mezcal, this could be a really good product. So if you're going to have a product with that flavor profile, then it should be someone who Quality. is mm -hmm. transparent about everything. And then you're giving money to people who are then turning that into a nursery. Absolutely. So this is a really good point to talk about Sunnysol and uh, a little bit about the um, landscape, where it grows, how it's different from other varieties. Yes, so there's a lot to be said. Um, one thing about the landscape is it's really rocky. And a lot of that rock is volcanic rock. So before we get to the Ceniso, I, I just want to mention a couple of other things that have to do with the landscape. Um, and one of them is that volcanic rock, which is used to make the fires where the agaves are cooked. And that is a big difference. The other thing is that the fermentation tanks are not big overground. They're small underground fermentation tanks, also lined with wood. Yeah, uh, Lou at Sacred Agave had a few pictures. Uh, we're gonna try to get some because I know Tess has a bunch of them, so okay, we'll we will them. put them on the on the website. But uh, yes, uh, is, that is that's one of the factors that I saw on Lou's web uh, postings on Instagram, and I was like, that is really interesting. It must change the flavor immediately. We asked a couple of uh, vinateros why that was the case, and they all had reasons, but it was more of that kind of folk wisdom. And it didn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, but it, it is the culture there. Uh, I'm sure someone has the answer. So then the other thing to consider about the terroir is, of course, the ceniso itself. And 
first and foremost, let's make the distinction between the Sanizo that we're talking about now and then the agave that we call Sanizo from Oaxaca. The Oaxacan Sanizo is Salmiana, and the Sanizo from Durango is uh, Duranguensis. That's its scientific classification. And for those of you who don't speak Spanish, Sanizo is it's given this name because it has kind of an ashy or ashen color. So in English, it would be ashen or ashy. That is complicated because there's a lot of agaves that during their growth, they look very ashy and then they evolve into these very mature greens. But there's there's like this, uh, I would say, first stage when the leaf is like getting out of the bud and, 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 you know, peeling off from the other ones with the spines and all that kind of stuff that you see it and you almost wax is wax with this ash color until it grows bigger. Yeah, it's and there is another one called verde, which is a more intense green color, which is an angustafolia. Is that the same verde from Oaxaca? I don't think so, okay. but I'm not I'm not sure. Okay. Um, anything is possible. So the Sanizo, the Duranguensis is really really interesting. It only produces by seed it's almost impossible that it has rhizome hijuelos. So usually agaves can shoot underground from their main root and pop up a little baby plant, and that is an hijuelo produced by rhizome. And the Duranguensis sinizo will only do that in rare cases when the plant has been transplanted. That's so wild. And it's almost like he's trying to survive because he's being moved. Exactly. It's like emergency mode. We've been uprooted. Let's use our secret resource. The other interesting thing about it, there's a lot of interesting things about Sanizo. And let's just let's just pause and consider that right there. So if we're getting 99.9% of our reproduction from seeds, the biodiversity of Sanizo is mind-boggling. So that's one reason that we don't have the same threat for the Duranguensis that we do for other agaves and why a lot of it is still wild. Um, but that also changes things because every single batch that you get can be even more different than any other Super mezcal. terroir. Super right. terroir. And it's so complex because the topography is so complex that you're going to have, you know, earth in their maximum expression from the mountain, from the rocky part, from the desert. Like, it's going to be pretty amazing. It's, it is amazing. So one of the, in one of the areas that we went to, we went to the Rancho and Mesquital, where the Ceniso for Lagrimas de Dolores, one of them, they have multiple um, is, is produced. And th- what's happening there is there's interesting cross breeds. So one of the things that Herman, um, the owner of, of the brand said to me is like, I wanted to figure out what each one was, but then someone told me, don't open that Pandora's box because you'll go crazy because every single plant in a way is its own, can be its own new species. And most of them are, you know, you can say, okay, Ceniso, Ceniso, Ceniso. Okay, that's a cross between Ceniso and Verde. So there are some weird anomalies, but most of them we just, you know, they're just classified Ceniso. And this is all happening by pollination from seed. Um, obviously, if you have the Iuelo, then that is, an, uh, that is an, a genetic copy of, of the mother plant. 
one of the the first uh, teaching lines that Sandra from in situ told us was like, you know what, agave is the most promiscuous plant in the universe. <laughs> it doesn't care who are you, what are you. If you're an agave, we're on it. So there's a ton of hybrids from the hybrid of the hybrid of the hybrid <laughs> that it was very interesting to know because, you know, that, that was the first curious note from agave plants. Which makes it genetically very strong. Um, so if you're in the wild in Durango trying to identify what kind of agave you have, you could first look for the ashy color. You could also notice if it's growing in clusters or families, because if it has ijuelos or it's growing in clusters, chances are it's not cenizo or it's been transplanted cenizo. And the other way that we were explained to tell the difference is be because of the quiote. So the flowering stalk that it will shoot up, um, you can identify them because if depending on whether it, it starts really high up to the top and there's just a couple of little branches that come with flowers or if it's all up and down, then you can tell whether or not it's ceniso or verde. So there are a lot of different little clues that you can get to figure out what kind of agave it is and then also if it's a hybrid or some weird new animal. So we talk about the terroir, we talk about the plant, we talk about a little bit of the fermentation and the process. Taste. You were there, you got it out of the steel or close to that. What? You know, you, I, I know you've been in many, many different places. You have the the the, the lucky uh the lucky part of you to be able in, in to be in like the, the steel is coming out and you're catching it. So Durango, what's the taste that you came with? So for me, the taste is a combination of earthy and fruity and something kind of lactic. I get a lot of chocolate notes. For me, ceniso and chocolate go really, really well together. And of course, mezcal in general and chocolate pair well. But there's something about ceniso and chocolate that for me is really next level. And it is almost across the board every time I try it. And I think it is that way because it has that kind of lactic thing, which I expect comes from this really rocky, dry soil and the plants needing to dig down deep to get those minerals. And then that earthiness and little fruit overtones, which I could be describing chocolate right now. So that makes sense to me. Um, and that's, that's what I see kind of across the board. I, I would say that those are, for me, defining characteristics of the flavor. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. And I like it very much. I, I have to say that the mezcal that got me into mezcal in terms of flavor, the first time I tried a mezcal and I was like, oh, that's an interesting flavor versus when I drank it in college and thought I was cool because there was a worm at the bottom, you know. The plastic one? Yeah. 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 That plastic <laughs> worm in college seemed really cool. Um, was I was in uh, Mezcalería in DF, and it was a mezcal from Michoacán. And fast forward to today, where I've spent many years working with mezcal, my favorite flavors very, very often come from Michoacán, Durango, the northern states, may seem like they're the new kids on the block to us. But as we were saying, they are actually really old and ancestral. 
And the flavors really give Oaxaca a run for its money. You mentioned a very interesting point. The, the rocky volcanic stones that they use for the conic oven in the floor. Uh, and, and it's just a, 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 you know, a weird thought. But, you know, you go to a spa, you go to a sauna, and they have mineral rooms where you, there's salt and there's all these things that get activated by heat. So knowing that this is a volcanic stone that will be heated to be able to cook the agave, that's that's one of the things, and it just I just thought about it. This is something that it just came to my mind when you were saying this, that that must be something that also changes the chemistry of the 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 the, the cook agave texture, the cook agave flavor, the cook agave chemical components. That I don't know, may, it might be something that we we can investigate a little more, but it will be interesting. Yeah, we could ask Fabiola. I'm sure she would know chemistry. Yeah. That would be a great podcast. Next one. <laughs> um, so as far as the Saniso goes, that is the most um, common variety in Durango. Is that right? Yes, that's what most people are using. That's, you know, it, even the scientific name Durangensis right. kind of gives it away. That's the bread and butter of so, the mezcal industry there. I see. But they do have other varieties that they're producing. Yes. Yeah, there's from. Verde, which is the Angustifolia. And then there's uh, Tepemete and Masparillo. Uh, there's another one called Lamparillo, which I had some people tell me that Lamparillo and Masparillo were the same thing. And then it was clarified to me that they are distinct. Um, and I don't remember all of the scientific names, though um, we will be publishing something with all of that. Are these are this also part of or close to the family of like an Espadín or a Sierrudo or... You know, the, the, right. the angustifolia. Angustifolia, yes. The angustifolia is, is, espadine is an angustifolia as well. Okay. So, and, and that's really one of my favorite agaves for mezcal. And the verde, we had a really, really good verde from a producer, uh, Sacro Imperio, which I brought back a bottle, which by the time you're listening to this, it's probably gone. <laughs> um, but that was really, really delicious. And one last question that I have for you about the plant the size of the piña were they big were they small were they meaty what's what's the deal with them there are different sizes uh the the cenizo from what i saw was pretty pretty medium sized um the, and these are the hearts of the agaves that we're talking about yes yeah. the hearts of the agaves and they said that it, it's a really fibrous agave um but the the cenizo that i was eating which was probably from the very very center was really tender and really meaty. Okay. Um, it was really interesting. That's so cool. And also, um, Durango does fall within the denomination of origin, so they are labeling as mezcal. They are. There are some that are desilados de agave. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one really interesting production that's going on. It, it's Sotol country as well, so there's Sotol. Um, and one of the producers for Lagrimas de Dolores is kind of with the leftovers doing experimentation of blending sotol and agave together in one batch. So that can't be called mezcal. Are they blending it after it's been fermented and, and distilled, or are they blending it, like, roasting it together? Roasting it together. Ooh, yeah. that's awesome. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. 
That sounds good. It was cool when when we visited Did, there. Were you able to try anything? Well, when I w- that's in Temoya, and when I was there, they had some roasted sotol, and I got to try the roasted sotol, and I have pictures, and it tasted kind of artichokey. Huh. It was really good. It, it was and it was different. You have to peel off this like waxy outer layer to get to the meatiness of it. Is the sotol agave plant genetically related to the um, uh, asparagus as well? Yeah, I think okay. it's related to asparagus. And actually, the quiotes, when they're just coming up, look like giant asparagus. That's It looks like asparagus for giants. Wow. <laughs> That's so wild. Okay, well, thanks so much. This was really interesting. And so everybody look out for those expressions coming from Durango. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tess. Thank you. Thank you, Tess. Hey Hey Agave is a production of Tuyo NYC. Brittany Prater is our editor. Your hosts are Gabrielle Velasquez-Zazueta and me, Sabrina Lazard. Our music is by Melagro Verde. Find them on Instagram at Melagro underscore Verde BK. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Salucita.